Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, now available at all your finest retailers. Please go buy a copy. Or a couple copies. Yeah, they, they work really well for leveling out tables. Yeah, exactly. You know, we're... Give one to somebody that you really, really like. Or that you really, really want to have a good nap. Um, now, between <laughs> the two of us, we have over 40 years of home brain experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. And on today's episode, well, we've got a little bit of feedback from you guys, including what's going to become a future episode as soon as I can get my, uh, my act together. And then, of course, we're going to go off to the pub. We're going to talk about the beer news. And boy, howdy, was there a bunch, as there always is. We're going to go to the brewery, and we're going to talk about a couple of things that we're doing and a couple of things that people have written in to tell us that they're doing. And then in the lounge, we are going to be talking with our good buddies, Tony and Annie, all about the Pilpazon. Ooh, you know what? I found one last bottle of that stuck in the back of my fridge last night. Yeah, I have the last two hanging out as well. I may have them tonight. And, you know, I think this is also the first podcast episode ever recorded at sea. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Definitely a first for us. Yeah, and then of course we'll be answering your questions. We'll give you something other than beer, a quick tip, and get you on your beery way. But before we do any of that, take a listen to these messages from the people who make the show possible. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, host of HomebrewCon, an annual celebration of homebrewing and the community of homebrewers. This year's event takes place in Nashville, Tennessee, a.k.a. Music City, from June 18th to June 20th. Learn more and register at homebrewcon.org. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Welcome back, and thank you for listening to those messages from our sponsors. Please remember, if you interact with any of our sponsors, let them know that you heard about them here on Experimental Brewing. Remember, they spend their money with us so we can bring you the show, so tell them to keep doing it. Now, speaking of the shows, last week's episode was a little late, but if you check your feed, you'll see that there was a Brew Files episode last week, episode 83, Anonymous Cezanne. I sat down while I was back in Orlando, and it was at Orlando Homebrewing Supply slash Rockpit Brewing. You heard from Rockpit a couple episodes here on the main show. I was at Orlando Homebrewing while the guys from Brewers Anonymous were doing a Saison brew, and I got a chance to talk with them both about the brew, what they were doing, what they do as a club, and how this tiny little upstart club that's three years old, 
managed to beat all the other clubs in Florida for the Florida Homebrew Club of the Year Award. So sit back and you can learn a lot about how they do you know, education, how they have some fun, including a trip to the cemetery with beer. Man, that's darn impressive. I know, right? Now, also, we realized the other day, because we're really bad about keeping track of some of this stuff, but I it, it just suddenly flashed on us. Episode 85, so that's two episodes from now on The Brew Files. Episode 85 on April 1st will be the 200th episode of the show. Between that show and this show. So it's 200 episodes that we put out here on this uh, network for you guys. And we're taking ideas about what the heck we should do for episode 200. Let us know. Podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Yeah, we've got a few ideas, but uh, we want to hear what you guys think before we make up our mind. Also, I was supposed to be heading up to Tacoma, Washington for the first annual Pacific Northwest Cider Symposium this weekend. But it has been postponed due to all the worries about coronavirus in the Seattle area. And to tell you the truth, I'm kind of happy that it was. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting there eventually whenever they put it back on. And we'll try and do some phone interviews with the uh, people from the Northwest Cider Association soon. So that at least you can kind of hear about what's going on in the cider world around here. And from those of us who have uh, you know, chronic respiratory diseases or bad hearts... Please take care of yourself. Don't yeah, spread that right. thing. Right. Yeah, man. I was. Uh, that's why I was kind of glad to hear that it wasn't happening right now so that I didn't have to make that decision for myself. And we also want to remind you that the AHA Governing Committee elections are going on. Uh, they're Actually, they're getting close to being done now, aren't they? They're getting there. The end of the month. Yeah, that's right. So if you're an AHA member, please go to homebrewersassociation.org. Check out the slate of candidates for the AHA Governing Committee and pick your five favorites to vote for. And if you have questions for them or want to see more about what they think and what they plan to do, you can go to the AHA Discussion Forum. And there's a whole section there about the Governing Committee election and candidates answering questions and uh, talking about what they want to do to make your brewing world better. I just want to know who's going to put the free beer machine in the student lobby. I, I want to vote for them for treasurer. <laughs> That would imply that you're a student. Work with me here. <laughs> okay, okay. We'll, we'll pretend that you're uh, back in your early 20s again. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA, Amazon, Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's called Not One More Vet. It's an organization that uh, supports mental health issues for veterinarians. Uh, veterinarians have a way higher suicide rate than the rest of the population, and you can kind of understand that given uh, what they have to deal with. So throw us a few bucks, and we'll throw it to the people who take care of our furry buddies. Indeed. And now, now it's time for your feedback. feedback. And we have a couple pieces of feedback today, one of which we're going to actually talk to, and the other one which is going to become the basis of an episode here shortly. And the first one, the remember the science versus experience uh, kerfluffle conversation? Yeah, it was a discussion. Yeah. Then we had uh, our good buddy Dave King with beer. Uh, he wrote in to say, uh, Thanks to you and Drew for doing such a great job on your podcast. So many of us benefit greatly. I'm sure I'll see you in Nashville this June. Yes. I just listened to your podcast on science versus experience. I'm a retired metallurgist, and I made a career in electronic packaging failure analysis. 
I had to know how materials behave and what influences that behavior in order to figure out what went wrong and how to correct it. Science versus experience was often an issue. Science provided the relationships we needed to know in order to use materials and manufacture our products. Knowing what the important variables were and how to control them was key. Knowing the symptoms of not controlling these variables allowed us to search for clues as to what went wrong and eliminate things that didn't matter. But an analysis is only as good as the assumptions taken. When they're incorrect, we're led to incorrect conclusions. Direct experience is always better than a theoretical analysis. It is well understood. A concluded failure analysis must often be sold, meaning that it often recommends spending money and or effort, which will not be popular. We often presented our evidence in theory, but then followed up with an experiment to prove it. If the science and experimental results didn't agree, it meant we had a bad assumption, like a missed variable, poor calibration, or an unmeasured and incorrectly assumed value. I believe that science will agree with experience if the important variables are understood, controlled, and accurately measured. When we miss something, that's where they dis disagree. Just my humble opinion, your friend in brewing, Dave King. Wow. Thanks, Dave. That's uh, very well said, man. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and it makes sense. And that's one of the problems, I think, with brewing and actually really one of the problems with you know science in general is that we never quite completely get to the final answer. Uh, there was a joke meme running around on the internet the other day that I saw where somebody had said that just once they want to see a scientific research paper end with a section that says, there are no further questions. <laughs> There's always questions. The question is, are there further answers? Well, that's what we'll find out. And then on the other piece of feedback, we're not going to get into it uh, right now, but uh, after talking about all the Saison stuff last week, including the Brulosophy experiment, uh, I did get uh, feedback, including from some of the folks behind the Brulosophy experiment, and I will be reaching out to y'all. Uh, and really some more information, if you guys remember, that's all the stuff that was going on about uh, STA-1, diastaticus, uh, whether or not oxygen ingress matters, etc. And I want to structure a whole Brew Files episode around that, so because I think there's a lot of really good stuff to talk there. So we'll dig into that deeper. And like I said, if you guys wrote me, I will be reaching out to you. Just takes a little time. I'm busy. <laughs> well, you, you pretend like you're busy. Well, I have to. They gave me a paycheck to look like it. That's right. All right. I think that's enough of that. And I think it's time for me to, well, get to drinking some beer. Yeah, we're going to head over to the pub. And when we come back, we'll be talking about the beer life. So please stick around. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publishing books of enduring value for amateur and professional brewers, as well as titles that promote understanding and appreciation of American craft beer. Visit BrewersPublications.com to learn more. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com.
Welcome back, everybody. If you interact with any of our sponsors, please let them know that you heard about them here on Experimental Brewing so that they'll keep supporting the show and we can keep bringing it to you. So, we are sitting here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, and we are drinking today. Uh, Drew, why don't you go first? What are you having? I'm having two beers. Jeez. Making up for me, huh? Yeah, exactly. Making up for you, and also it's been that sort of week. Uh, but they both come from the exact same brewery, L.A. Ale Works, where you you and I both went to, right? Oh, yeah, man. I love those guys. And they had uh, two beers that I just tried from them, and I still have a little bit extra, so it's you know, really nice and yummy. I have their Live Life Lager, which they did in conjunction with a reggae band called Fortunate Youth. And what was really cool about this one was, because I just did a talk on lager beers, what was really nifty about this one was it had all the lager characteristics that you wanted. And a lot of times I don't like, uh, you know, there's that notion of the India Pale Lager. A lot of times I don't like them because they come off as being like really grassy or way too bitter for the the base of the beer that's there. What I really liked here with the Live Life Lager was it took some lessons from like the hazy IPAs. It wasn't about the bitterness as much as it was about these hop oils, but instead of being like overloaded with the hop oils like you find in is kind of the point of the IPAs, it had this just really sort of rich, rindolent, and tongue-coating oil characteristic that never went that orange pith bitterness. And after you drank it, you had these sort of citrus and piney and spicy type flavors that just kind of hung out on your tongue for a good long while without ever actually feeling overwhelming. And I thought that was a pretty nifty trick. And then at the same time that they gave me the Live Life Lager to, to try, uh, Kip also handed me a can of his uh, Quantum Leap. And you guys will remember I spent some time waiting on the Plenty of the Younger train the other week, and that was a lot of fun. But uh, the Quantum Leap uh, is Kip's triple IPA, and, you know, like an 11% in a can, and tropical fruit kind of approach with a little bit of candy sweetness to it. That was actually my only objection to it, is that it has a little bit more sweetness than, say, the Plenty of the Younger, but Plenty of the Younger this year is a master class on how to make a beer dry. And But still, it was a very, very sneaky beer because a lot of hops, again, a lot of hop oil, not a lot of that pithy bitterness, and the alcohol is hidden well enough in it that I got about halfway through a 16-ounce can before I went, oh, oh, there it is. <laughs> Oh. Which I always consider to be a, a bit of a trick. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what, man? I kind of remember you saying the same thing about uh, Bottom Cutter, about it being way too drinkable for the alcohol content it had. Oh, uh, absolutely. Bo- uh, bottom Cutter is terrifying. So, um, <laughs> and I, it's only uh, a double IPA. Yeah, apparently I like these uh, these strong hoppy beers that hide their alcohol really well. Oh, well. And then again, I do like gin. So, there we are. There we are. Now, Denny. What are you drinking? I am uh, taking this week off from beer. Uh, I've been drinking a whole lot the last few weeks, so I decided that uh, maybe I would just stick with water. One of the great things about having a kegging system is that you can make your own sparkling water, uh, put a slice of lime or lemon in it. So that's what I'm doing now. I'm having some homemade sparkling water with a slice of lime in it. It's highly enjoyable, and I'm really looking forward to the weekend when I can have a beer again. You know, it's actually even better when you put some gin in it. Um, <laughs> hmm, there's a concept. Yeah, right. Uh, but I will say, yeah, if you keep, if you have enough room for it, I would keep a, a keg online, just in a dedicated keg, 
And you can actually go and you can buy the, the flavoring oils that you need. And guess what? It turns out that you can make flavored seltzer water for a lot cheaper than you go buy uh, LaCroix or Bubbly or any of these other things. So you're a home brewer. You spent the money on the system. Do it. Yeah, man. I, again, yeah, I thought about that, but I kind of prefer just sticking a slice of the the real fruit in there when I drink it, and then I can have it plain if I want. The other thing that's handy is if you overshoot a, an OG badly on a beer, you can put a little shot of that sparkling water in it to kind of like tame it down a bit. I uh, I made a Pilsner uh, in the not too far distant past that came out to be almost 7% for some reason. So uh, I would pour a glass of it, put in a little shot, maybe a tablespoon or so of the uh, sparkling water, and it was a much, much nicer beer. Well, I mean, that's like the old uh, Mike McDowell trick where he would make a stronger lager and then make his golf course version of the beer with salted water. Yeah, right, right. Kind of the same kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. so right. I guess On it's... On to the uh, news. Yeah, man. Uh, and closings, closings, closings continue, huh? Yeah, so this week, you know, another week and more things have closed down. Uh, and again, it's impacting you know largely the, the older places that we know, the larger places. So... Uh, the was it Craftworks Holdings, which is a restaurant slash brew pub holding company, which happens to own Gordon Biersch, Rock Bottom, and Old Chicago, amongst others. I think there's one or two more in there. Oh man, there's uh, there's more than that. Uh, I saw the list, and there were just like a ton of uh, breweries, brew pubs, and restaurants involved. Yeah, uh, and they've been closing down. A number of locations, like they uh, last year, they closed down the Portland Rock Bottom, which had been there forever and a day. And Van Havig from Gigantic was from there, and he went and saved the brew logs. Good job, Van. Uh, he, uh, you know, they closed that one down with no warning. And just this last week, they closed down the one in the Navy Pier and a whole bunch of other places. And everybody's looking at it going, what the hell's going on? And then immediately on the news of the latest shutdowns, they actually turned around and they filed for Chapter 11. Uh, you know, basically seeking to, you know, hold off their creditors until such point in time they can restructure everything so they can pay down their debts and, you know, figure out how to keep operating. And so, yeah, they're, they're referring to all this with all that great marketing language that says, oh, this isn't, you know, a bad thing. This is us just restructuring to better utilize our resources and, you know, la, 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 la. But which, it is Which really it might very well be, you know? Well, it might be, but uh, it's interesting because it makes me wonder, has the day of... The, the, the brew pub, the chain brew pub, you know, so your rock bottoms, your BJs, uh, these guys, has that gone the way of the dodo? Are we past it now? Well, I don't know if it has gone, but it, it may be going that way because there are so many, uh, small independent local places opening that maybe there's just not enough business to go around for the big guys. Uh, I, I know that even with like all the breweries and brew pubs that we have here in Eugene, uh, when I go by the BJ's that we have, it always seems to be doing pretty well. But it's also situated right next to a shopping mall, so you know that's going to help them draw. Well, and the guys behind BJ's always sort of aimed to be the next TGI Fridays, so there we are. Right uh, now, a couple important points to note: the Gordon Biersch Brew Pubs are independent from the Gordon Biersch Brewery. So Dan Gordon still owns the Gordon Beer Brewery. He got back the rights to it uh, a couple of years ago. So if you're looking at Gordon Beer Beer from San Jose, that is not being affected. Uh, so Dan is still alive and well and brewing. Um, 
but on top of the, the news about Rock Bottom and Gordon Beers, there was also a lot of news about uh, Rogue shut down uh, what they're their really famous little pub in Issaquah, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, man. That thing has been around for quite a while. Yeah, and then Stone just announced initially they were uh, shutting down their Shanghai store because of coronavirus concerns. But then, like, not even a week later after saying that the closing was temporary, they announced that they were shutting it down permanently. So that's another Stone location that's now closed, and you know, after Berlin famously last year. And then the McKellar bars, you know, so the McKellar bars aren't necessarily owned by McKellar Brewery, right? They're franchises. And so the same guy who owns the McKellar in San Francisco opened up one in downtown LA. I did a, I did a inspection of that location last year for, uh, Castmark. Uh, they just suddenly shuttered the location completely. And so that place is now gone as well. So it's interesting that we're seeing all these really high profile and frankly expensive places getting shut down it is indeed uh but again these are the big guys like we were talking about yeah exactly so be interesting i'm 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 wondering if this is just more of that same sort of trend i mean i think we're also even seeing in the chain restaurants where all of the all the big sit-down places you know not the fast casual type places but the sit-down places like say your tgi fridays and whatnot or your applebee's are really kind of hurting so interesting i'm wondering if that's following the same there the same vein all right and from that sort of dark and depressing and down note let's go to something happy <laughs> yeah man uh on our continuing look at women in brewing there's a great event going on in portland uh this weekend actually it's going to be sunday march 10th which probably by the time this comes out will have gone past it's called she brew a uh, homebrewing competition specifically for women uh the 250 homebrew entries and 40 participating professional brewers and they had a brew fest on the 10th also to go with the whole thing uh a great event celebrating women brewers and you know i have not been up to the event but from what i hear it's great and there's some really great beer available there so what's really cool, I mean, yeah, the the event will be passed by the time that this podcast will get released, but you can still actually participate in the event sort of remotely because Oregon Live has been doing all these really great sort of pre-festival articles where they've been highlighting different women in the craft beer industry from around the area. And so there's just like a whole slew of these articles that are out there. You know, really, you know, diving into each of these women and like how they got involved in the beer industry, what they love about it, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, you find out some really fascinating details about some of these women who are bringing you your beer. So we'll include a link to those in the show notes because I think it's well worth it and you can learn something new. And also along those same lines of uh, celebrating women in, in brewing, you know, the Pink Brutes Society has been very active doing collaboration beers all around the, the country in various chapters. I just saw this today as we're recording this and i sat here and giggled for a good five minutes after seeing this cigar city brewing company there in tampa they hosted the florida chapter of the pink boot society to do a, a beer and the brewing society put together a beer that was a double ipa and they called it you should smile more uh, and with, with the tagline of, yeah, sorry, we were too busy brewing you this awesome double IPA. <laughs> I'm 
Yeah, that 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 is that is deserving of the finest golf clap. So, <laughs> shout out to shout out to the Florida Pink Boot Society. Wonderful sense of humor on that one, and also to Scar City for releasing that. I would love to see it. It looks like it just sounds like a really great beer uh, with all your favorite hops. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, it, uh, maybe maybe if we say enough nice things, they'll send us some. Yes, we'd love to have some of the beer. Thank you. <laughs> That's right. All right. Now, <laughs> I feel like this. I feel like this pub life is a, a little bit of a whipsaw here. We're going to go from the happy note of Shebrew uh, to a less happy note, but also at the same time something good. Uh, we posted about this on Facebook. Uh, Greg Etzel, who is one of the hosts of Come and Brew It Radio, uh, our buddies over there in Texas, uh, also worked at Texas Brewing uh, in there in Fort Worth, is, which is a big homebrew shop in the area. He was just a really, really, really great guy. Unfortunately, he passed away of stomach cancer last November, uh, which is really sad and kind of took me by surprise because I didn't know anything was going on. Um, but the in the Dallas area, they've decided a whole bunch of uh, microbreweries there have put together a calendar of memorial beers they're going to release because Greg was a hell of a brewer as well as being a hell of a beer aficionado. And they're going to use the funds from those beers to help support a couple of charities. Uh, Greg and his wife were big into adoption, and they just adopted two sons before uh, Greg was diagnosed with cancer. And so, you know, a lot, of, a lot of good work going on there. We'll include a link in the show notes so you can actually see what the beers are that are being produced. But I think, uh, if I remember correctly, Greg had a, a, a penchant for German beers. And so, if I remember, the, the list was fairly German-heavy. Yeah, they're starting off nice. with a Weizenbach. But I just got to say, Greg was... Just one of the nicest people I have ever met in my life. Uh, one of the quotes in this article says, Greg was one of those special people you felt like you had known your entire life, no matter how long you'd actually known him. And that's really true. Uh, a great guy, a great brewer, uh, brewed a lot of great beer, helped a lot of other people brew a lot of great beer. And it's, it's a real loss to the entire beer community, not to mention his family and friends. So we just kind of wanted to uh, give give Greg his props here because he certainly deserves them. Yeah, and the very first beer, as Danny mentioned, is a Weizenbach. It's going on tap on March 12th, which is Greg's birthday, at Cowtown Brewing in Fort Worth. So if you're in the Fort Worth area, go to Cowtown Brewing, get yourself a Weizenbach, and uh, raise a nice big glass to a guy who is a hell of a brewer and a hell of a dude. That's right, uh, and try and live your life like he did. Exactly. And so now to complete the whipsaw effect, <laughs> before we head to the brewery, I want to make sure that we give a shout-out to Nick Corona, who's been on the show a couple of times. He just announced the other week that his Five Suits Brewing Company, uh, which he's been trying to launch for a little while, he was going to be in Escondido until that deal fell apart, the, he has announced that he's going to be taking over Barrel Harbor Brewing Company in Vista and turning it into Five Suits. So that's going to be uh, starting relatively shortly. He's already applied for the transfer of the license. So congratulations, Nick. You big dummy for getting into the brewing industry. Yeah, we're going to head over to the brewery now, and we're going to talk about what we're brewing and Drew's big score. So stick around, and we're going to be right back. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their 8th generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mecca Grade. 
For more information, please visit mechagrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Welcome to the brewery. We're going to be talking about what we're brewing, what we're getting ready to brew, and Drew goes first because he's got nearly a ton of things to talk about. Yeah, literally almost a ton. So uh, every year, the Maltos Falcons, we do a grain buy, and usually the way the grain buy works is that we tell the club members that if you're a dues-paying member, the first 20 members who get to themselves to the homebrew shop can take 10 pounds of grain for free. And it's any mix of grains inside the shop and they can get those 10 pounds. But the deal is that they have to bring the beer back to the club. So either to one of our festivals, a party or to, you know, the club meeting primarily, preferably all of those. So it's just a way for us to kind of fuel people's brewing just before our big festival season. Uh, this year we decided to do something a little different and we reached out to uh, Seth at MechaGrade. You've heard Seth here on the show before. And of course, Seth is one of the sponsors of the show. And I asked, hey, would you be willing to donate 200 pounds of grain to the to the club so that we can do this? And he said, sure. And hey, by the way, since I'm sending you grain, I'll give you guys a discounted rate if you guys want to buy anything and we'll get it shipped to you on a pallet. So I sat down with my club members. I gave them a spreadsheet and I said, order, please, quarter anything from a quarter bag up. And next thing you know, we are now getting just shy of 1,800 pounds of grain shipped to us. That's going to make a hell of a beer. I know, right? That's at least one batch. (laughs) Yeah. And what we, uh, so now a couple of things that we had to do, and this is a a thing to keep in mind. So there's a discount if you buy like this, right? So, but at the same time for all these pounds of grain that we're buying, that's money that's not going into our shop's coffers, right? Uh, so one of the things that we decided to do was we also threw on a surcharge so that every member who's buying is also paying some money that's going to go to the shop as well to say, thank you for hosting us and allowing us to do this. And, you know, yay. That's really nice, man. Good thinking. Well, yeah, I mean, look, I love my local homebrew shop. I wouldn't be anywhere without them. So I like to make sure that they're still going to be healthy. So it, I uh, the reason why we bring this up is. If you have a homebrew club and you guys want to do a grain buy and you have the opportunity, you can always email the folks at MechaGrade. And one, they've been very generous with donations to homebrew clubs. So like our neighbors in Thousand Oaks, the T. Oaked homebrewers, they had their Romancing the Beer competition in February and every Best of Show winner. So like Best of Show Beer, Best of Show Mead, Best of Show Cider, they all got like a 50-pound bag of MechaGrade. 
Um, so, you know, they're very generous with their donations and they, they love to give people the opportunity to use their products. So try contacting them. You never know what will happen. And all of this will be actually be coming up on a future episode of the show because those 200 pounds of grain that Seth donated, those brewers are going to be brewing those beers and then I'm going to be tasting them and talking about them. Oh, you lucky devil, you. Oh boy. So, <laughs> oh boy, again. time to have some fun. Really? Now, man. let's, let's talk about what we're brewing. Because, Denny, you're getting ready to, to brew tomorrow, right? Yeah, I am. Uh, I guess on the last show, I mentioned that I had uh, an alt beer going to build up uh, some Y East 1728 for a Wee Heavy that I refer to as the Wee Shroomy, since it ends up with chanterelle mushrooms in it. Uh, and tomorrow is the day for the Wee Shroomy. I'm going to be racking the uh, the alt off the yeast, Brewing a batch of the Wee Shroomy and uh, putting it on the yeast cake. Pretty simple recipe, actually. It's the famous Scott Rat Triquar House recipe. Basically, it's uh, 20 pounds of Simpson's Golden Promise Malt. That's one of my favorites that I've used for this beer for a long time. With just an ounce of midnight wheat thrown in for a touch of color. Uh, Northern Brewer hops for bittering to... Uh, an IBU of, oh, maybe in the mid-20s, something like that. Not not too high. The thing that really makes this beer, though, is the infamous boil-down. You take the first gallon of runnings out of the mash tun, you boil them down to, oh, maybe a pint or so, and add those back to the boil kettle at the end of the boil. And that really, really ups the richness of this beer. Uh, I'm going to be using my induction plate for the boil down for the first time. Normally, I uh, either bring it in the house and put it on the stove and have to run back and forth, or I do it on a uh, on a propane burner in the garage and end up scorching it. I'm looking for say, that's kind of overkill. <laughs> yeah, really, man. So I'm really looking forward to uh, checking out the induction plate for this. I think it's going to be a lot more controllable and take up a whole lot less room while I do it. And then uh, after it gets done fermenting, it gets racked into a secondary with five pounds of chanterelle mushrooms that I chopped up, vacuum sealed, froze, and then thawed. Great way to extract the flavor for them. And it'll sit on those for a week or two, and then it'll get uh, bottled or kegged. Uh, you know, people always give me a strange look when I talk about mushrooms in beer, but this is just a perfect, perfect combination between the chanterelles and the, you know, which have kind of an apricot flavor to them and the real rich maltiness of the Wee Heavy. It, it's a great blend. Uh, somebody contacted me recently, wanted to get the recipe, and, you know, I told them five pounds of chanterelles, and they're like, okay, fine. Heard from the guy a couple days later, he went, do you know how much those cost? It's like, yeah, I do, which is why I go pick them myself in the woods behind my house. So not everybody's that lucky, though. Well, I was going to say, not everybody's that close to Vista, California, and not everybody's that close to a giant <laughs> free harvest of chanterelles. That's right, man. You you do your local stuff what you can. Well, and a very important point, though, for people, going out mushroom picking is a dangerous sport. And if you don't know what you're doing, don't do it. Get taught by somebody. Yeah. The difference between a mushroom that is tasty and gives apricot flavors versus a mushroom that melts your liver is not readily apparent. Yeah, and uh, chanterelles, you're pretty lucky because there's really uh, no dangerous mushrooms that look like them. There's one that looks a little bit like it, and it just doesn't 
doesn't have much flavor or anything, but uh, it won't kill you. But yeah, Drew makes a good point. If you're going to be going out hunting mushrooms, either make sure you know what you're doing or you take somebody with you who does. Yeah, don't depend upon an app. <laughs> no, definitely not. But otherwise, I'm fascinated by the idea that these mushrooms give stone fruit an apricot. Uh, that's just unusual to me because I'm so used to mushrooms in a savory component. Right. And usually, you know, like fried down with butter or olive oil or something like that. That never occurs to me that they would have a fruity compound to them. Yeah, and chanterelles definitely do, man. Whether you're putting them in pasta or putting them in beer, uh, that that kind of uh, flavor is still there, and it, it really is a, a nice enhancement. I don't don't think I've ever run across another mushroom with that kind of flavor to it. Uh, candy well, caps, you know, have some sweetness to them, but it's that's more like a, a maple syrup kind of thing. Well, didn't you do a beer once with uh, um, mayatake mushrooms? Matsutakis, yeah. Matsutakis, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. A neighbor- Which, by the way, if you want to talk about, you know, making chanterelles look cheap. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Those things are uh, incredibly expensive, like in Japan. Uh, but my mushroom hunting neighbor brought me, uh, as a matter of fact, I have a bag of those in the freezer, too, waiting for a Golden Strong to go into. Uh, but those have been described as a combination of red hots and dirty socks, and they, they definitely are. Well, you had me with one half of that description. <laughs> you had my dog with the other one. Yeah, well, I, and I got to I gotta say that my neighbor who brought me these mushrooms uh, really, really likes them because of those uh, characteristics. They're just a bit on the funky side for me, but on the other hand, I'm more than happy to brew a batch of beer and take half of it. There you go. And speaking of Belgian Goldens, that's actually what I'm working on. Cool. So, what kind of recipe are you using? Oh, just a very simple one, not too far off from my triple. You know, so it's going to be uh, mostly Pilsner and then a little bit of a sort of a C8, you know, like one of those low Belgian crystals, mm-hmm. and pretty much run from there with like a neutral hop addition and let it rip with some sugar as well. So like, in this particular like, case, I'm just going to just going to do you know just white sugar in this. Around, like around 20%? Yeah, exactly. Around 20% of the grain bill will be sugar, or sorry, 20% of the fermentables will be sugar. And then uh, I've already got it on the the Belgian ale yeast is sitting under Belgian blonde right now that I'm going to transfer out and use the cake from. And let it it rip and have that in place. It's it's sort of based off my blank spaces recipe, which is a beer that I've made in the past to really provide a really good canvas for additional flavors. And once I get the beer fermented, I'll see what it is that I like, whether or not I want to leave it plain, or if I want to add some fun to it. And then I'm going to probably bring that to the Southern California Homebrews Festival. You know what just popped into my head as you were saying that? Pomegranate. What about a little bit of pomegranate syrup in it? I mean, and and that's something you could do, like, even in the glass. Yeah, exactly. Well, I was thinking about, like, maybe having, like, some different flavorings available at the festival to have people... Mix your own, uh, a la, you know, like uh, Berliner Weiss mit Schuss. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That that could be really cool. The the third brew we're going to talk about today was one made by our good friend Steve Rutch. And Steve, I hope I pronounced your last name right. I know I got the Steve part right. Uh, I sent Steve some Great Western Brew Malt, which they had sent to us to kind of get an opinion on and to put out to people to get an opinion. It's kind of like... Like a crystal with just a hint of tartness to it? Is that how you would... Kind of like a little bit of that super honey malt? Yeah. Like like an uber uber honey. And people will remember a couple of episodes back, or I guess not a couple of episodes now, but back in 
uh, November timeframe, you would have heard us tasting some of the beers that I've made for the 40th, 45th anniversary party for the Falcons. And in there was that lager that was just done with Pilsner and the brew malt. And boy, did that thing lend a lot of character. Yeah. You know, um, this malt is made by Great Western and they tell us that there's a hint of tartness to it, but I really haven't been able to pick up much of that. And Steve said he couldn't do it either, but so anyway, he brewed kind of like, uh, he says it's a, a sort of mild recipe in place of the crystal malt he normally uses. He brewed two gallons and uh, went from 1040 to 1009, low IBUs, like around five or six SRM. And because uh, Steve lives in a converted bus, he uh, he brews extract quite a bit. So he used two pounds of golden light uh, DME, eight and a half ounces of Maris Otter, six ounces of brew malt, ounce of pale chocolate, an ounce of victory, two-tenths of an ounce of EKGs, and a pack of uh, S189, which is a lager yeast, but works pretty well at high temps also. Uh, Steve says, normally I'd use three ounces of Karastan and three ounces of British Crystal 80. I'd also use four ounces each of pale chocolate and victory. I use the S189 because of the temperature range in my fermenting cabinet. I'm pleased with how this turns out. Uh, and in, in the email that he sent us, too, he mentioned that uh, they've also been using it for things like making pizza crust that turned out really well. So uh sounds interesting. I'm, I may try something along that line. I used the brew malt in uh, a pale ale. I used about 10% of the grist was brew malt in the pale ale. And I, I really liked the flavor. I, I loved uh, what you made with it, too. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think ours were very similar in terms of just what the grain bills were. Yeah, um, right. Yours was I mean, you, you went the logger direction and I went the the ale direction. Yeah, and I will say I think also that malt has enough character in, in it that I think you can get away with just using it in addition to your base malt and still get something very interesting, which is exactly what you and I did. Uh, Steve yeah. obviously added some additional things, and uh, but still, I think it's an interesting malt to play with. So I encourage people to go check it out. That's the uh, brew malt, and that's B R U with an umlaut. So Umalt, uh, and uh, go go give it a try. I think it's some interesting stuff. Yeah, it's definitely uh, worth checking out to see if it's going to fit into your inventory someplace. There you go. And speaking of interesting stuff, let's yeah. go to see. And tasting beers. We're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we're going to be over in the lounge talking to Annie Johnson and Tony Oshner about the Pilpazon that we made. So stick around. It's uh, an interesting and fun conversation. We'll be right back. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family farms to the world's finest brewers. With their new online store, YCH products are now available wherever brewers choose to shop. Browse the aisles of your local homebrew store or buy direct from YCH at shop.yakimachief.com. Also, experience the new YCH Mobile Solutions app, a free, sustainable alternative to the popular hop variety handbook with information on more than 120 hop varieties to help you make the best beer possible. Available now in the Apple Store or at Google Play.
Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Hey, welcome back. We have the comfy chairs. We have the, well, I guess you can't call them smoking jackets anymore because we're not really smoking. But we have the comfortable jackets on. It's time to lounge. Lounging. All right, and on this episode of The Lounge, we actually, well, we're revisiting some stuff that we talked about earlier. You guys will remember we did a whole episode when we were up at Micro Homebrew, and Annie, Tony, Denny, and I, we all got together and decided to make a beer that was the best of all of our worlds, and we made the oddly named, not entirely certain it was going to work, but holy damn did it not, Pilpazon. Yeah, man, it was a, a very serendipitous experiment, wasn't it? Yeah, I was really, really, really pleased and surprised by this. So uh, you'll hear in the the conversation that we're have, about to have, you know, Tony at his shop, Annie in the middle of the Puget Sound somewhere. <laughs> on a ferry. She'd been out clamming that day and was on her way home. So uh, you'll get to hear a lot of interesting background noises. Uh, yeah. This this was all recorded via Skype. So the audio quality at times is kind of sketchy, but, you know, it you can make it out. And it's a great discussion. And... It's an even better beer. Yeah, it is a surprisingly good beer. And uh, we'll put the recipe up on the website in case any of you guys are crazy enough to want to try it. But in the meantime, sit back, relax, grab yourself a beer, unless you're driving, and listen to this conversation with Annie Johnson, Tony Oshner, and the two of us talking about the Pilpazon. Hey, welcome back, everybody. It's time for one of our favorite things to do. That's right. It's time for us to drink some beer. But not just beer, it's going to be beer that you've heard about before. This is a beer that we all brewed together, and there's four of us on the line. So, obviously, you know me. (laughs) Yep, and you know me. Uh, We've also got Andy Johnson here. Say say hello. Hello. (laughs) There she is. You hear me? Yeah. And we've got uh, Tony Oshner from Micro Homebrew. Hey, Tony. Hi, guys. All right, so, Denny, why don't you set the stage? What are we talking about? Okay, way back in, oh, what was it, end of October, something like that, right around Halloween, uh, Drew and I went up to Seattle to do some book signings, and our first stop was at uh, Tony's shop, Micro Homebrew, and he suggested that we all brew something together. So I thought about what it might be, and I thought about Annie's uh, Pilsner's, my pale ales and Drew's saisons, and thought, well, what the hell? Let's just mash them together, and we'll make a pilpazon. Uh, Annie picked the grain based on her pilsner grist. Uh, I picked the hops based on some of my favorite pale ale hops, and Drew picked a, a saison yeast to go with it. And uh, that's that was that was the theory. And uh, Tony's Tony's got the recipe there. So uh, Tony, why don't you kind of like go through it real quick? Okay, well, we did uh, 
two and a half gallon batches, um, and it was six pounds of the Wireman uh, Four Malted Bohemian, half a pound of white wheat, and an ounce of uh, German acidulated malt. Um, and then the hops were a third of an ounce of Chinook at 60 minutes, and then a half an ounce of the Cascade Cryos and a half an ounce of the Citra Cryos uh, in the Whirlpool at a one, 170 degrees. And then finally, that we used the yeast uh, that Drew suggested, the farm, the Y yeast thirty seven twenty six farmhouse ale. Right. So we uh, we brewed one batch, brew in a bag style, and we brewed the other batch on a Pico Z. So we have twice as much beer here to try today. Tony, you you fermented these. Any any mistakes, mis- mishaps, or interesting things happened during the ferment? No, everything went pretty pretty smooth. I do uh, don't have temperature control at the store, so we uh, fermented them at about sixty six degrees. Um, they both got up to about sixty eight uh, on their own, but probably not as warm as we might have wanted to use that yeast. Well, the good thing is the that Blausey's yeast is okay at uh, cooler temperatures. Yeah, yeah, they turned out pretty good, I think. Yeah. All right. And so I think it, it, it just behooves us to then uh, go ahead and uh, have these. Uh, Tony, you did the solid of, you know, not only fermenting the beers, but also packaging them. I assume they were, uh, they weren't bottle conditioned. They were keg carbonated and then counterfilled or beer guns. Uh, yeah, that, that's right. I did that. All right. So which one first, Drew? I, well, let's start the old fashioned way and then, and then we'll go to the Z. Okay, so oh, good, because I just opened bag. it. <laughs> <laughs> good guess. And, and for our listeners, uh, if you don't know, um, and there's no way you would know, Annie is currently on a on a ferry. I am. I'm. I'm just leaving Whidbey Island to head to Mokotio. I'm literally sitting in the car, looking at Puget Sound. <laughs> I'm not sure about the legality of this, but I'll take it anyway. All right. Oh, Annie's we're not. I'm. I'm not driving. The boat is. <laughs> All right. Well, first thing I got to say is, okay, so for the old-fashioned way, which we did on an induction burner, brew in the bag, and, of course, it also cracks me up that we're calling it the old-fashioned way. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm getting <laughs> I'm getting kind of a wonderful, you know, gold, well, really yellow, you know, a little bit lighter than gold, but not straw. A nice, a nice carbonation flowing through this and a tight white head. Yeah. Wonder, wonderful aroma, man. That that yeast combined with the uh, Cascade and Citra finishing hops is just really nice. Well, and that's what I, I, I really I'm sorry. I really enjoy the hop flavor in this one. It's delicious. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I'm usually a bit hesitant to to want to mix older school American hops with Belgian phenols. So, like in this case, you said what uh, Cascade and Centennial, and then and then Citra, right? So Citra is the brew. Uh, bit, bitter no, just, with Chinook and okay. Cascade Citra to finish. Okay. But you know what? Um, I make a, a, a what I call a Belgian American IPA that I am extremely fond of, using old school American hops and the Y yeast Ardennes yeast, and that's kind of what I had in the back of my mind for this. And to tell you the truth, I'm I'm pretty pleased. Well, I think the fruitiness of that Blousey strain, so that Y yeast uh, farmhouse ale strain, works yeah. really wonderfully up against those citrus notes, and also the fruity notes of the citra. And the bitterness is actually just about dead on to where I'd want it to be, particularly since it gets that nice little dryness in the final in the final bite. Yeah, yeah. 
Tony, any yeah. thoughts? I think the Cascade, uh, I think the, the kind of the grapefruity from the Cascade and then the typical citrus, you know, citrus kind of thing really plays well with the yeast. It's, it's, it's seamless, really. Just sheer dumb luck, buddy. <laughs> or years and years of experience. Well, I was going to say, Denton well, had the hardest job on this one because, I mean, Annie and I, I mean, we had one ingredient to choose. <laughs> well, you know what, man? Yeah. I just I, I just went to Tony's hop freezer and looked at what was in there and went, ooh, yeah, let's do that. Yeah, I think that the, the, the yeast character, the phenol, that fruit is a little sweet that plays off the hops really well. I don't, with these hops, I mean, it, it makes them a little more subdued and they work really well. That citrus fruit, but not in a pungent, funky way. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, I mean, as, as I sit here drinking this, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm going to have to brew this. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a stupid name, but it's a great concept. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you the stupid name, man. But on the other hand, what the hell are you going to call it? I, I don't know. Uh, uh, Belgian IPA in some ways. Now, yeah. no, no, no. I know. All right. Yeah, I know you have problems with that. So let's talk about the the version that we did with the Z. So, Annie, explain for everybody who doesn't know what the Z is, what the Z is. Oh, the Z is the second generation of the Pico Brew Zymatic. So it has more whistles and bells, better, um, you know, the way to navigate it, better temperature control. Just, just a, you know, the, I'd say it's a difference between a rotary phone and a, you know, iPhone 10. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's actually a good way to put it. And I, I got to tell you, man, I just absolutely love brewing with my Z. It is so seamless and works so well, and you know, it, it's a great product. Yeah, I, it is a good one, and 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 I don't know what you've heard, but it'll be here to stay. It's a good one. Cool, great. Now, so for people who who have never seen a Z in action, it's kind of an offset boiler, right? So. You know, you're doing all the mixing and boiling of the beer after the mash in a keg, and then it's drawn back into the machine to be heated up, and that's recirculated. It's very much a concept of what you see in a bigger brewery, where you'll see these offset calandrias. Uh, instead of actually boiling in the boil kettle, you actually heat it up outside and then allow it to keep boiling in your kettle. In this case, the Z uses a keg for that purpose. And, uh, Annie, remind me, the 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 temperature that it's actually running at, it's not a full 212, right? It's like 208 or something, or 207 uh, in that area? 207. Okay. And yeah. So not that of, it matters. Well, but, I mean, a lot of people have, you know, you know, armchair pundits out there on the Internet who want to poo-poo everything, have uh, poo-pooed on the concept of a Z, despite the fact that offset calandria-type devices have existed for a century. Uh, they want to poo-poo on it because they're like, oh, well, it never goes up to the full 212. Now... One of the things I'm noticing is actually between the batch that Danny and I did in Bruna Bag on the induction plate and the Z, the Z actually, to me, has more gold color. It's slightly darker, at least in the samples I've poured myself. And, yeah. But at the same time, the other thing I'm noticing is I'm getting more yeast character. So yeah. I yeah. Do you I think it's more yeast character, or do you think it's less hot character? I kind of get less... Hop character on their I, own. I think 
Yeah, I think that you've nailed it there, Tony. I think it's the hops aren't aren't jumping on the yeast as much as they did in the other one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but again, because of the fact that the way this is structured, I think it actually works either way. Um, yeah. And also, they're, getting, they're both delicious. Well, and I'm also getting a little bit more of a. Uh, I'm trying to think the best way to put it. More of a. A, a sweet honey-like tone to the to the grain character in the Z batch that I did in the induction batch. Definitely. So, so I, that may also be an offset from the hops. It, it could be. You know what? It, it could also be that maybe uh, it, it's an oxidation kind of thing, and that the uh, brew in a bag batch, uh, the malt got a little bit more oxidized during the mash, and the Z batch doesn't because it's more contained. I don't know. That's just a, an off the wall guess. Well, it's better than my guess. It, it, they, they both finished at ten oh nine too, so um, they're they're. Uh, it's a right a right. So. Yeah, so take take that, all you people who think that uh, final gravity is always related to sweetness. Yeah. Uh, I would say that I would brew these for the summertime, and I think um, this recipe, I would knock it down to 4.85%, and this could easily be a summer beer for me. It's so thirst-quenching. Well, and... yeah. It- it's right in the ballpark of what I do for my my summer saison, my table saison, which is my you know saison experimental, the thing I always have a keg of. And yeah, it's definitely true. It's it's there. It's a it is a wonderful summertime type beer. Yeah. yeah well, you know, we'll have to we'll have to like make up a four. We'll have to come up with a recipe for a four point eight version, and we'll all brew it and trade them around and see what we think. There we go. Yeah. I will I will say that I think my favorite is um, the old way just because of the hop flavor of that combo I'm just I just love it I like the other one it's great but I really like the old way the hop you know the, the way they're a little more pronounced so and yeah and I- that makes me wonder then so Given that people will say, oh, well, you know, that's because the Z is not uh, bringing up to a boil. It's not expressing the hops as much. If you were to redo this on the Z, what would you do to try and drive more of that hop character? Or do you think you even have to do anything? Oh, no, you could. You would. I think that uh, I would just add more. You can do that. This is something that I notice about um, the Z in general is that you need to increase, um, the, you need to increase the hops and uh, the specialty grains Mm -hmm. more so than when you're doing in the more conventional way. And do you have a rough rule of thumb for how much you think of it? Yeah, I think I push them up about 15% more. You know what? That's exactly what I've discovered too. And you know that's yeah, not, and I'm. And you know that's not uncommon. I'm sorry. Say, like you know how somebody would have to bump up between pellets or whole leaf or just sheer pump, uh, bumping up because of different kettle utilization. So it makes perfect sense that I mean because we're moving between radically different systems. I expect if I did this on my grandfather, I would get a different expression as well. Yep, absolutely. Well, I don't know about you guys, but this is my favorite, my favorite sort of. Uh, uh, mail to get to to get ears. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and I think this was. I mean, this was fun to see. I mean, okay, one, it was a collaborative recipe that 
I think we all had a hand in. It's not like a lot of the collaboration beers that are out there where somebody just shows up on the brew day. Um, and I think it was also really just kind of fun to see what would be the difference between the systems. I noticed another one, uh, Tony, on the on the labels, you actually have put the approximate ABV. And again, these things started with a relatively modest um, original gravity. But you have on the old way, it's 6.2%, and on the Z-Batch, it's 6, just because of that slight difference in the in the OG. Because as you said, the, the final gravity's gotten to the same place. Um, I don't think I can tell the difference between 0.2% alcohol. But yeah, they were essentially the same. I just I uh, and I and I didn't write down the original gravities like I should have. But um, like you said, they finished they finished the same. So that was just the difference. It was just a couple points of original gravity difference. Right. Well, you know what? They're both delicious beers, and I'm sad yes. that I'm down to my last couple bottles. So I definitely think I'm going to have to brew this again. Well, and- Do you think me too? And you know what I'm really getting as the as the old way is warming up is I'm actually getting more of that hop oil character on the palate. Like when, yeah. like when it was first poured, I think the carbonation actually kind of stripped it off more. Uh, but now that right. now that's gotten a little little warmer and a little bit less carbonation in it, that that hop oil starts to become a little more apparent, which is not a bad thing. It's just it's interesting to watch how it changes just even over these few minutes we've been talking about it. Well, you know, and we, oh, sorry, we brewed these back in, in the, in what, late, the end of fall, the beginning of winter. Yeah. And yeah, they really held old. up. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. We were thinking we needed to do this tasting sooner than this, and we're afraid that the beers might have gone by by now, but they're, they're great, which is a testament to Tony's care and packaging. Yeah. Well, and I Thanks, think it's bro. also a testament to how well Cezanne holds up. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that, that Pilsner is- malt, I think that I think that with a little bit of acidulated malt in there, I think that really made a difference. I love using acidulated malt in everything that I make. You know, and I have not really gotten into that much, and I think that you've just made me a believer. Yeah, I I like it. I I mean, I don't know when I started doing it. It's been quite some time, but. I mean, I'll put in half pound um, for certain recipes. Minimum half pound, max usually a pound. But I, I, I just love it. I love it in there for you know, um, messing around with the pH a little bit. But um, it's good. It's good how, stuff. How very you know. German of you, Annie. <laughs> Definitely. But I know when I look at this bottle, I think with the Tony's label, I'm like, is it a Pilsner? Is it a Pale Ale? Is it a Saison? It's all free and it's delicious. It's a, I mean, yeah. if I had a brewery, I would have this as a flagship. I'm just saying. Oh, right. Yep, it's a floor wax and a dessert topping. Went right where I was exactly. going. Thank you. <laughs> You have to be a certain age to understand that. <laughs> well, yeah. Did Annie just say? Did Annie just say she was going to start a brewery? Is that what I heard? Uh, no. You know, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, uh, no way. We know. We know Annie is too sane for that. Well, yeah, I, I Annie's that too old and doesn't have the back strength. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, and, and I would uh, refute the idea of sanity given uh, Annie's. Uh, uh, chicken beer and Annie, are, are you're going to be in Nashville <laughs> this year, right? 
Yes, I'm actually giving a talk on the beer that I used to watch from the Maltose Falcons that you did with your Brute the Falcon. I'm giving the t- uh, talk on the uh, beer and the champagne method. Sweet. Cool. Now, we were wondering, since you are famous, infamous, notorious oh. for your fried chicken beer, would we, because Oh, yeah, that's coming. Well, but I have to ask, for Nashville, is it going to be a hot chicken beer? I knew you were going to ask that, and I'm definitely <laughs> doing hot chicken beer. Oh, get that out of the bag. <laughs> we, were, we, t- we talked to Matt Bowling right before we talked to you, and the three of us were speculating about if that's what would happen. <laughs> you know what? I'm thinking about doing a little bit of a dill pickle pilsner. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Don't do that to me, please. Well, and if you do that, then you got to oh. figure out some way to make something with white bread so you can have the full hot chicken meal in one go. <laughs> I think I might be able to incorporate that into some type of uh, British bitter. Yeah, just put, put a bunch of wheat in it, you know, then it'll be your white bread beer. Or just put the oh, white bread right on top of the pint. <laughs> Wonder beer. All right. Yeah. So now that we've gone wonderfully astray. Yes. I, I do want to bring us back on to the point before we, before we have to go. What would you guys want to change in these beers, if anything, if, when you go and remake them? So I would... Yeah, the only thing I would change would be to up the hops just a bit in uh, in the Pico uh, version. Uh, I don't think it needs to have the hop presence uh, that the old style version has because they're really nice variations on the same thing. So uh, the only thing I would do if I would do anything is just up the hops a bit on the Pico, and I might not even do that because I love both of these beers. All right, Annie. Uh, I'm with Denny. I, I like. I'm going to parrot what he says, and then that I'm also going to try it in a, a lower strength, mm-hmm. um, and I'm going to up the carb and enjoy it all summer long. There you go. <laughs> and Tony, what would you do? You know, I don't know that I would. I, I, I would raise the hops a little in the Pico one, try to get it a little closer to the old school one. I think if I play with this recipe, I'm going to try finishing with some of the other. Uh, cryo hops. Um, not because I don't think this one's good. I just think it, it it showcases it so well. I'd like to try some of the other cryo hops in it, too. Yeah, I agree, man. And the, the cryo, to me, is a real key in finishing hops. Those things are wonderful. So how about you, Drew? What would you do? I think the one thing I would change... So, Actually, there are two things I would, I would play around with. There are two different vectors. One is I'd probably play around just a little bit with the water chemistry. Give it maybe just a, a little touch of uh, gypsum, just to kind of uh, yeah. boost a little bit of crispness on the back end. Uh huh. And then the other one is just to swing it around in a completely different fashion. Instead of using the cryo in the finish, I would use some of the American Nobles if I want to swing this really old, uh, like more European. Wow. Oh yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. So, I- to, to me, that would make this a little bit more. A little bit more on that line of something classical like you would expect out of Belgium. This, to me, feels like sort of our update on Oublon Schouf, you know, from Brasserie Schouf, and also mm-hmm. slightly at a more sane gravity. So keep it as bitter, Drew, but just back off some of the aromas, just put the nobles in? Yeah, exactly. 
Uh, and what I think you would get is, I mean, again, that would make it more like, I think, the Z version. And actually probably even more restrained than the Z version. But with still that interesting underlining note of the American hops. Yeah. You kind of have to you kind of have to go heavier on the American nobles to get any aroma out of them because they're so low on oils. In which case, yeah. then you might want to back off on the bittering hops a bit. Maybe, but I, I think it would be a fun a fun thing to play with. I've had a real good time just doing like an ounce or two of American nobles as a finisher in some of the saisons I've done here. I really like that character, and also that little T note that you get. I think plays well up against the phenolics and the and the base of the beer. But those are oh yeah, those are just different uh, avenues of exploration. I like what we did, and by the way, I like what we did for the fact that this was the four of us just going, uh, um, uh yeah, we could do this. Let's make a beer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes. Sometimes those are the best kinds of bears um, to well, me you know, when you when you kind of, when you bring in the uh, the knowledge expertise and a lot of fun from different you know you, you you trust your your people your friends and everyone throws a little bit of something in it's a real it's a good melting pot beer I like this one a lot it's a bit like stone soup isn't it. Exactly. Well, yeah. <laughs> and also, I would like to point out that this is my favorite sort of collaboration where we collaborated to make a beer like this, and the collaboration didn't end up using like donuts or blueberries or you know, something <laughs> yeah. else. No lactose in this beer. Yeah. So. Or clams. Hey. What about clams? <laughs> yeah, clams. Hey. You got the clams. I was going to say, honey, one of us has a car full of clams right now, and it's not me. There you go. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you so much for getting involved in brewing this beer. It it really rocks. I think we all did a great job. It was a serendipitous experiment. Well, thank you guys for coming to the store and, and brewing with us. Everybody had a lot of fun. They're still talking about it. Uh, I really oh, appreciate it. Thank you. Tony, I love coming up to your store, man. It's always such a great time. And then Annie comes up, uh, comes over half the time, and so it's just even better. So now we just got to work on getting Drew to travel more. Hey. Yeah. I, I love to travel. I just got to schedule to beat the band. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> Okay, guys. Well, thanks again. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. Annie, enjoy your clams. Uh, Tony, go relax. You've been working all day. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye, you everybody. Betcha. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. I got to admit, man, when I uh, popped the first bottle and took a sip, I was very pleasantly surprised. I, I was, too. I was like, okay, yeah, this will probably, I mean, this will be beer. But it might be okay, but I was, I was amazed at just how great it came out. And a lot of times, whenever you do a collaboration and you have some sort of theme like this over the top of it, the beer just comes out as beer and not necessarily anything great. And I think we've seen that in a number of collaboration beers being done by our various lovely microbreweries. Uh, but this one, this is one I'd actually rebrew. Oh yeah, man! I'm looking forward to rebrewing it. Uh, I, I make a, a kind of like a, a Belgian American IPA that I really enjoy, and I had something like that in mind for this one. And boy, I, 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 again, in case you missed it, the way it worked was that Annie picked the grist based on her Pilsner recipe. 
I picked the hops based on, uh, you know, a pale ale recipe, and Drew picked the yeast based on his Saison recipes. So that's where we got Pilpazon. We'll include a link to the recipe in the show notes. And as we said, we highly recommend that you give it a try. Yeah, really. It's not nearly as weird as it sounds. It's actually super delicious. There you go. And now it's time for us to answer your questions. That's right. We're going to wrap the show up with some Q&A, a quick tip, and something other. So stick around. We're going to be right back. Y-Yeast is redefining Wintry Mix this quarter, so we invite you to toast these new exclusive releases as we head into the new year. An original from our early days, 1087 Y-Yeast Bohemian Ale Blend is being released for the first time ever to homebrewers. Look forward to the qualities of this versatile blend in your next British or American style ales. 1882 Thames Valley Ale 2 returns for its crisp, dry, and malty profile and the ability to produce bright bitters and dark ale styles. And if you're seeking a cold-savvy yeast for winter brewing, 2105 Rocky Mountain Lager is ideal for North American and light lagers. These Y-East Originals are released now through the end of March and are available for a limited time at your local homebrew shop. Find out more at whyeastlab.com. Welcome back, everybody, to the final segment of this podcast. We're going to start off by trying to answer some questions that people sent in. Absolutely. And our first question comes from Steve Hiller, who uh, contacted us and said, For the recipes in Experiment Homebrewing, do you happen to know what the typical volume of the wort is after chilling, but before transferring to the fermenter? No. Well, I usually try to target five and a half gallons. I try to target five and a half in the fermenter, but that doesn't necessarily relate to exactly how much uh, ends up in the kettle. Uh, I would say that I end up maybe with like five and three quarters to six gallons in the kettle, and then five and a half of that gets transferred to the fermenter. So there you go, Steve. Thank you for writing in. I know we took a while to answer that question, but there you go. We finally got to it. Yeah, right. And, you know, that that's a rough guess. I would say that you should end up with whatever amount works for you. Yeah, I mean, everything about my recipe design is designed to end up with as close to five gallons in a keg as I can get. Exactly. Same with me, man. I want to go for five gallons in the fermenter so that I have like a half gallon loss to play with there. You want to go for five and a half gallons in the fermenter so you have a half gallon loss. Oh, yeah, right. That's what I meant. No matter what I said. And our second question comes from Ben Braun, who said, uh, I made a no-chill saison a couple of weeks ago. This was my first time trying the no-chill method. The beer turned out rather good, but I'm wondering if one of the flavors I perceived in the finished beer may be DMS, or is this a farmhouse funk character imparted by the yeast? 65% of the fermentables was Pilsner malt, reasonably vigorous 75-minute boil, bittering hops, Amarillo, and Centennial, added with 45 minutes remaining in the boil, Whirlpool citra hops for 15 minutes at about 170 degrees, no spices or additional flavor items added, no-chill was done by simply placing the lid on the pot and letting it sit outside in freezing temperatures, around 30 degrees for six hours, no snowbank, 
Actually, no, snowbank is better in this case. Um, got down to about 65 degrees in that time. Did not filter the cold break. Fermented with the Mangrove Jack uh, French Saison M29 yeast. Allowed to warm up to nearly 80 degrees. It's my first time using this yeast. Beer turned out rather good with the pepper clove floral character I was expecting. The citrus character from the citra hops is also present, particularly when smelling the beautiful foamy head. It has a lot of the Belgian and yeasty sort of notes I was expecting, but there is also a corny smell. The beer tastes fine from grain to glass in two weeks. Awesome job. My questions. In your experience, do some Saison yeast produce kind of funky smells that can be described as corny? Any experience with this yeast? Two, could this note be due to DMS from the Pilsner malt and the wort slow cooling in a covered pot? It's not dissimilar from the notes I get from some Polish Pilsners. And three, if this is likely from DMS, what can I do to avoid it in the future while still using the convenience of the no-chill method? Well, so Ben and I kicked this around a little bit behind the scenes because we wanted to. And so here are my uh, answers to the questions. Uh, do Saison G's produce some funky smells? Yes. Could they be described as corny? Not in my experience. So, uh, and my experience with the M29 uh, yeast is like most of the French Saison strains out there, the 3711, etc. They're fine. I just find them to be awfully boring. And if I'm going to just make a regular Saison, I'm, I'm much, I'd much rather go and use another strain. Uh, I'll use the French Saison, particularly when I'm going to do a nice hoppy Saison, much like what Ben did here. On number two, could this be uh, due to the DMS from the Pills remote? I think what we're seeing nowadays, as long as you have a good vigorous boil, it's really hard to get DMS into your beer. Uh, SMM gets volatized fairly uh, well these days with a good boil. So the only time I would worry about is if you had an anemic boil. Um, and then if it's from DMS, what can you do to avoid it in the future? Uh, well, I would switch malts if you are experiencing it, it was DMS. But none of that matters because Ben and I kept talking, and it turned out it was the yeast. Uh, primarily, he cold crashed in the keg, and the tasting notes he had were from the first couple of pints, which had some of the yeast in it. And, oh, imagine that, huh? Yeah, and as we've said before on this podcast, yeast that's left in the beer can lead to some weird, weird flavors. So after allowing the beer to settle out and, and pouring off a couple of pints, uh, the beer suddenly cleared up. And that corny aroma slash flavor was gone. Yeah, I had a similar yeast experience recently when I pulled a, a sample of the alt beer that I have out there in the fermenter after about a week and a half. Very tasty. You got an idea where it was going. But it had kind of like an astringent, dusty bitterness to it. And mm -hmm. I've come to learn that that's from the yeast still in suspension. So, uh, you know, what I tend to do is put put a sample into the uh, fridge for overnight or so to help settle some of that out uh, when I grab an early sample. But yeah, you can you can get a lot of strange uh, flavors from yeast still in suspension. Yeah, and I think that might be the first time I've ever heard it described as corny, but uh, I believe yeah. it. And yeah, I, I've never used that yeast before, so I don't know. It might be from that. Uh, I was wondering if you had any comments about the farmhouse funk comment. Um, well, I mean, again, I think that in this particular case, the funkiness is, again, it's because of that yeast. But, uh, and, or, or not, not because, sorry, not because of the yeast, but because of the yeast being in suspension. Right. So I could very easily see that being described as something funky, particularly like if you get some of the more, uh, the bready, meaty flavors. Right. What I got out of it though was an implication that a Saison should have a funk to it. And I think that we've discussed the fact that that's not necessarily the case. No, and I've written whole articles about that. Uh, but no, in this particular case, it was just like, 
I, I could see what he was going for with that, but yeah, it's not, you don't have to have any funk characters in your saisons, you know. Uh, there's a whole world of clean saison, and one would argue that saison Dupont is clean. As yeah. I'll get out. So, right. yeah, I, I, I wouldn't worry so much about funk when you're trying to do a saison, unless it's what you're going for, in which case there are lots of cultures out there to help you with that. Yeah, right. If that's what you want, go for it. But I can't remember one that I had in Belgium that had that kind of funk that American brewers so often go for. So, Well, that's because uh, we tend to step on the gas in that uh, sense. <laughs> more hops, more funk. More everything. Right. All right. And our next question comes from Nathan Wilson, who says, I've been homebrewing for about three years now with a reasonable amount of success. I've been listening to your podcast the entire time. Oh, man, I'm sorry. And really like everything you guys are doing. I have two questions for you, but I'll try to make them reasonably quick. After hearing several different stories and ideas for Party Guile Brewing, I've been wanting to do this and finally got the chance about two months ago with a few friends. The day was a lot of fun and resulted in the decision to do it again later on in the year. The question I have is that we made a Belgian dark strong and attempted to follow it with a double. I know this is a bit ambitious, but the dark strong came in at around 11.2% ABV and tastes fantastic, if just a little hot, which I am hoping some aging will mellow out. The Double, which landed at 6.3%, is a very tasty beer carrying the aromatics and flavor characteristics of Double, but is lacking in the body. I was thinking that we could use some maltodextrin or replace some portion of the dark candy syrup with a liquid extract. Do you guys think this will alter the perception significantly? Is one of these a better option, or do you have any other ideas? I recognize that it was ambitious to attempt a double for the second beer, and we should have just gone for a brown ale, but we're homebrewers. Way to go, Nathan. And question number two. After giving it a shot, I have switched over to the shaken, not stirred starter method and have used that almost exclusively. My question is, do you treat lager yeast any differently? I may have typically used dry lager yeast because I started brewing while living in Italy, and they were more readily available. Now that I'm back stateside, I wanted to try a few different strains, but it occurred to me that my normal method is to allow the yeast to go to active fermentation at about 70 degrees Fahrenheit, then pitch the whole starter into the wort. Going to these temperatures can cause some unwanted flavors in the beer under normal fermentation conditions, but will those flavors carry over into affecting the beer? For lagers, I generally cool to 50 degrees Fahrenheit and pitch, then allow to ferment at 48 to 50F. Thanks for all you guys do, and thanks in advance for your thoughts. Nathan. P.S. I will probably just give my lager a go under my normal method before this hits the air because it's been bothering me. So if you don't have a definitive answer, I can share my results. Well, we'd love to hear from you uh, about your results, Nathan. Here are my attempts at answering your questions. First question, you're trying to increase the body of a double, and a double really shouldn't have a whole lot of body. Uh, all Belgian beers should be what the Belgians refer to as digestible, uh, meaning light-bodied and easy to drink without filling you up. Now, I haven't tried your beer, so I don't know what the body is like, but my inclination would be to tell you to leave well enough alone. Uh, I've screwed up a lot of beer trying to fix it. If I was going to go for either of your ideas, it would be the maltodextrin. But to tell you the truth, man, 
I, I wouldn't do it. Uh, you know, just leave well enough alone, drink the beer, learn from it, move on. Okay, so then about the starter temperature question. Remember that with a starter, you're growing yeast. You're not making beer, and yeast grows better at warmer temperatures. So if you add a quart of warm fermented starter wort, it won't have a negative effect in your beer. I, I used to convince myself that it did, and I made all my starters really cool and decanted and just pitched the slurry. And then I decided, okay, I'm going to make the leap of faith here and just pitch the entire quart of warm fermented starter wort in. And you know what? I couldn't tell it was there. So, you know, not only that, but it's been shown that a lot of lager yeasts are actually ale yeast genetically. So, you know, they'll be pretty good at that kind of higher temperature. Uh, so what you're doing is pretty much what I do, although the temperature in my house is cool most of the time, and so that means the starter is going to be closer to 65 to 68 than 70. It's not a big deal. Bottom line, give it a try and see what you think, like we always say. And please get back in touch and let us know what you thought about it. The, the other thing that I guess I should mention while we're talking about this is that for an average uh, OG logger, like, you know, in the 1045 to 1055 area, I've had absolutely no problem with just like a, a quart of wort uh, doing the shaken, not stirred method where you pitch it when it's actually fermenting. Uh, if I was going to be doing a larger batch or a much higher gravity, I would, uh, I would do something else. Uh, our buddy Tony, who you heard from a few minutes ago, uh, recently got in touch with me about he wanted to make a, a 1080, 1085 beer and was asking about, you know, if the normal shaken, not stirred method would work. And, you know, I, I can't remember doing one that gravity, uh, with a shaken, not stirred starter. So we kicked it around a bit. And what he decided he would try is uh, two packs of yeast into a quart of wort rather than making a larger starter and then just pitch that during active fermentation. Heard back from him a week or so later, and it had worked fabulously for him. He had active fermentation in about five hours. It fermented well. It finished where he expected it to finish. So, you know... I would say, you know, if you're doing something different, think about how you can adapt the method to it, but you don't need to significantly alter it. There you go. Now, yeah, and I kind of agree. Uh, remember, I did the King High Stupid Lager, the Falcon's Clause, and that one, uh, I I don't do a regular start for that one. I go and make a batch of beer beforehand. <laughs> but that's no different than if I was making a big stupid ale. Well, and that's that's exactly what I'm doing for the Wee Shroomy, too, is making a batch uh, first and using the whole slurry from that, but... Uh, I think for the, and that, that beer is going to be in the 1090 ish area. So that's even bigger than Tony's. But, uh, I think I, I may have to maybe make like a double IPA or something and give his method a try. Okay. Well, there we go. We had a follow up to one of our questions from the other week. You all remember Jerry Tenney, the one who wrote in, uh, the very detailed question with all oh, the steps yes. about the recipe that I sped read. Um, and he ended up having like a medicinal off flavor in the beer. By the way, I still love the amount of detail there. And mostly, it was fun for me to be able to read that fast. He says, hey guys, I have an update. I brewed another beer with a starter I made from the same yeast pitch I used in the beer with the medicinal off flavor. And guess what? Same off flavor. It was a different recipe, different fermenter, etc. But the common factor was the yeast source. 
So in light of my discovery, can you guys refresh my memory on the best way to keep yeast from overbuilt starters clean? Well, to me, it's always do as few transfers as you possibly can. You know, every time you open up the yeast, every time you do anything like that, you're going to run the risk of, you know, well, it contaminate everything. So I know a lot of people like to do the overbuilt starter, like all in one jar and that sort of thing. I don't like to do that. And that's because I always get freaked out about, hey, I'm reopening this jar that I had already opened and I mixed air into it and when there wasn't active yeast fermentation. So for me, I even if I do like an overbuilt starter idea, I'll split a pitch into, into multiple jugs and just do the one jug at a time just to avoid having to open and mix in uh, air with dust and all that sort of good stuff in there. So that's what I do. Denny, what about you? Well, I'm trying to remember, uh, was Jerry the guy who'd been stirring the yeast underwater? Uh, let me check. I don't recall that. Um, while Drew's checking, I'll just go ahead and uh, say, if you are storing the yeast under distilled water or something, don't do that. Uh, it's bad for the yeast health. Uh, you really should be storing it under beer as opposed to water. Mm. Uh other yeah, and confirmed. He he did uh, store it underwater uh, in the fridge at forty degrees for about six weeks prior to making. Yeah, it so so six weeks is a reasonably long. It's getting there, you know. I've used yeast older, but you know, it's getting there. And especially if you're storing it underwater for that long, then I would say that that's going to have a negative effect on your yeast health. So uh, next time, Jerry, try storing it under beer instead of water, and see if maybe that solves your problem. All right, and our final question for today comes from James Wilson, who says, I was just about to counter-pressure fill some bottles for my keg. I was wondering whether there's any point in sanitizing them before filling. I make sure my bottles are spotlessly clean by giving them a soaking hot PBW before use. Previously, I've also rinsed with Star Sand or Idafor, but after thinking about it, I don't see any point with well-cleaned bottles. What are your thoughts? Denny, I have thoughts. Sanitize the damn bottles, man. <laughs> uh, you know, if you're going to be drinking them soon, like say within maybe a week or so, then okay, don't bother. Much longer than that, it's uh, it comes to Russian beer roulette, and so how hard can it be to sanitize them? Get a spray bottle of sanitizer of Star Sand or something like that, and just squirt them down before you fill them. It's it's moments and give you some peace of mind. Well, it's not just peace of mind; it's also storage things. So remember, there is a big difference between something being well cleaned and something being sanitary because you can be well cleaned and still not sanitary. So yeah, no matter what sanitize your bottles, if you're going to send these into competition, sanitize the bottles, oh, definitely. you're going to give them to your friend. If you're going to give them to a friend and you don't know when they're going to drink the beer, sanitize the bottles. If you're going to go drink the beer that night, whatever. Yeah, that's right, man. <laughs> Nothing's going to happen in that short of time. But like I said, much more than a week or so, you're going to be glad that you sanitize those bottles. Yeah, I mean, remember again, think about how many hours you've put into those beers, how much effort it is to go get the counter-pressure filler rig working or your beer gun or whatever it is you're using, even if it's just a hose and a tap. Um, that's a lot of work. Don't skip 30 seconds worth of work. And jeopardize all the other labor you've put into it. Yeah, it, it, it's false economy, man. Uh, the sanitizing part is going to be the quickest and easiest part of the whole process. So just do it. Yep. But again, up to you. You're a beer. Yep. And now, 
it's time for our last couple of segments. Yeah, uh, I've got a quick tip today, and it's come up with an alternate heat source. Uh, it'll be handy. You might remember that uh, when I was talking about the Wee Shroomy, I was saying I'm going to be using an induction plate for doing the boil down. Uh, I use it when I'm doing brewing a bag batches in the house, stuff like that. Uh, but it, you know, really that's going to be a lot easier than doing other things. So it's always great to have uh, a secondary heat source around, whether it's something like the boil down, whether it's helping you heat your sparge water, whether it's just a backup in case you run out of propane or something like that. Keep an alternate heat source around. Yeah. And these days, those induction burners, at least the 120 versions that, you know, you can buy off of Amazon, whatnot, they come relatively cheap. So they make sense. And I have friends who, for instance, they'll have an alternate heat source around because let's say they miss their mash temperature, right? They, they, they're, they're a little too low. They'll use the, the burner that they have on the side and use that to heat up like a mash and a little mini decoction and use that to reheat the main mash and pull it up a couple of degrees. So it's always a good idea to have a little extra heat source. Uh, as Denny pointed out, it makes sense for him. So he doesn't have to run around and, you know, go back and forth between the kitchen or do things or try and overcook something with a propane burner that's designed to, you know, heat up 10 times the volume. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, uh, the other other thing you can always also have on hand is uh, before the induction burners came on sale and everybody switched over to using those for demonstrations and whatnot, there are also the little butane stoves. You can also get one of those. Those things are super cheap. Yep, that's right. Um, but for what, whatever you do, it, it's not a bad idea if you have the, the space to store it to have like an extra heat source around. Absolutely. And now for something other than beer, because life is not just about beer, no matter how often I think about beer. So, and uh, as always, I'd like to bring you guys some other podcasts I've been listening to. I came across this one a couple of weeks ago now. There are only 10 episodes of the podcast. But, you know, in the past, I'd recommended things like uh, The Fall of Rome and also uh, uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, which are, you know, shows that require some investment. Uh, another uh, PhD guy out there, this, this time British, a guy named Paul M.M. Cooper, who's also an author, he's put together a podcast called The Fall of Civilizations. And what's really cool about it is each episode focuses on a different civilization that has risen up and fallen down and looking at, you know, both how they came to, came into power and the things that it looks like caused their collapse and what it was like to be somebody who lived during that period of time. And so unlike say, you know, the fall of Rome, you know, he's not focusing on just Rome. And of course everybody wants to talk about the fall of Rome because here in the West we're obsessed with Rome. He's covering all sorts of different cultures. Now, admittedly the very first episode is about the fall of Roman Britain you know, well ahead of the Roman civilization, but what happened when Rome pulled out of Britain. But he's also covered things like the fall of the Khmer Empire, you know, the people who built Angkor Wat, uh, the fall of the Songhai in Africa, you know, which is around uh, Gao and Ma around the area where Mali is today. So like Gao and Timbuktu. Uh, he's got a, you know, most of these episodes are about, you know, an hour. As the series goes on, and he's gotten closer to episode 10. They've become two hours, and the next one that's uh, I'm about to tackle is he did one on the fall, the Aztecs, which is a four-hour-long episode. And so if you think Danny and I can talk for a while, prepare yourselves. But it's <laughs> it's really, really cool because also you can kind of tell he's not stating it explicitly, but he's 
seeing he's talking about commonalities between the different falls of these different civilizations, like economic pressures, uh, environmental pressures, like climate change in the region. You know, suddenly, like you know, talking about the 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 Sumer Empire, right? You know, Sumeria, and talking about how it got devastated because water patterns changed in their area. And so it's very, very interesting. You can start to kind of tease out some of these commonalities, and I suspect that's on purpose. Um, but it's also really cool for just really also going in and introducing you to civilizations that you may have heard of but never studied, or even civilizations that you've never really uh, spent any time on, like particularly here in the West. I don't think most of us have ever thought about the Songhai Empire, except for you know the, the one legend that goes about the guy who is so rich he spent so much gold on his trip to Mecca that he depressed the value of gold everywhere and bought it back on the way back to recover the economies. You know, that's the only, that's the only legend I'd ever heard about the Songhai empire. Well, you're one legend ahead of me. There you go. But (laughs) very, very interesting stuff. A lot of really good content there. Like I said, he just released episode 10 as we're recording this. So you're not that far behind. And besides, it's not like the history is changing that much. (laughs) That's right. Okay, let's get out of here. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I hang out on a lot of different beer discussion forums, but mainly the AHA forum. Drew can be found on the Homebrewing subreddit or the Slack Homebrewing channel or just hanging out on Facebook. Um, and if you want to write to us and ask questions, suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And you can always leave us a voicemail or send us a text at 626-765-1AL. That's 626-765-1253. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. (laughs) 